Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars in the field. With us today is Julie Chernoff-Huang. She's an Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Goucher College, and she's the author of a new book, Why Terrorists Quit, The Disengagement of Indonesian Jihadists, which just came out from a Cornell University Press. Uh, Julia, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about the book. Uh, what do you think the major contributions of the book are, and what, what were you trying to accomplish in writing it? That's a great question. It's a very big one. Um, I would say that within the literature, the terror, broader terrorism literature, we see a lot of focus on radicalization. We see a lot of focus on terrorist behavior. But less focus on the exit behavior. And I was seeing this in Indonesia as well. We were having a lot of analysis of group splinters and group uh, factionalization, um, radicalization, um, histories, events, data-driven mm -hmm. research. We were seeing less on the out pathways. And that was something that I wanted to do with this book and the contribution that I wanted to make with this book. Um, and over seven years, I was able to interview over a hundred, uh, do a, over a hundred interviews with 55 members of Indonesian Islamist extremist groups. Um, and these were Jamal Islamiya, Mujahideen Kompak, Tanaruntu, Mujahideen Kayamanya, Ring Banten, Moscow Jihad. Um, two of my people, one went off to join ISIS, and one joined an ISIS affiliate called Mujahideen Indonesia Timur. So even though it's one country, there's a wide array of groups. Mm -hmm. It was done in seven cities across two islands. So the sampling was... Um, as broad as I could make it. Did you talk to these people in prison, or how did you make contact with this diverse sample of jihadists? Well, um, usually it was through specific guides, and I was lucky that many of them I had met along the way when I was working on my dissertation book, Peaceful Islamist Mobilization, The Muslim World, What Went Right. And by the time I started on this research, they were already friends. Some of them were academics. Some of them were human rights activists. Some of them were starting terrorist rehabilitation NGOs. And people referred me to others, um, notably journalists. Mm -hmm. And each of these people had a sampling of people who they had built a trust relationship mm -hmm. with and that they had established friendships and bonds with. And so I went in through them. And over time, I was able to go back to them. And that, I think, is one thing that makes Why Terrorists Quit unique, in, is that I didn't just drop in for one visit. I was visiting them. I might see someone go to prison and then visit them in prison and then visit them when they got out of prison. And hopefully mm -hmm. there were a few instances in the book with two of the life histories where I was able to meet wives, children, parents... And you get a fuller picture of a person's stories. You can check out inconsistencies when you're visiting them every year, mm -hmm. every other year. 
That's really interesting. So for those of us, uh, especially here in uh, this Middle East focused um, kind of audience of listeners, maybe aren't as familiar with uh, just the basic trajectory of jihadism and Islamic extremism in Indonesia. Can you just walk us through a little bit about the emergence of these groups and uh, kind of what happened? Another excellent question. Um, I think it's fair to say that Indonesia has had a long-standing Islamist extremist fringe going back actually before the independence era, but the notable group um, for the purposes of studying modern jihadi movements would be the Darul Islam movement. Um, Darul Islam is a series of rebellions that emerged around the independence era, and then um, that those rebellions were crushed um, in the early 1960s. Um, from them, there emerged a Darul Islam underground movement that existed in the 70s and 80s. And this is a group, and it still exists today, it has nine factions, one or two of which are violent. Um, and this movement, it was a faction of this movement around Abu Bakr Bashir and Abdullah Sankar that was the channel for most of the Indonesians who went to fight um, and train in the Soviet-Afghan war. And in 1993, um, they splintered off and formed their own Islamist extremist group, Jamaat Islamiyah. And we, one thing that we see, um, and they had a core of these Afghan veterans. Um, and they saw themselves not um, moving from Darul Islam, which was about an Islamic state, mm -hmm. to an Islamic community with Jamaat Islamiyah. And... And so they launch a terrorist campaign. Not exactly, actually. They, I was trying to figure out, taking a moment to figure out which way to go. Um, when Osama bin Laden's fatwa comes, they, um, they were split. Hmm. Certain members, most of whom were based in Malaysia, supported the fatwa. They wanted to be more aggressive. Um, they, the main locus of that was a man named Hambali who's currently at Guantanamo Bay. And Hambali wanted to spark a civil war between Christians and Muslims. He wanted to attack Western targets. He was embracing the fatwa. And the people who were around Hambali in this Malaysia-based wing, um, they had much more money than the rest of the group, and they wanted to plan attacks. Hambali was the person who had al-Qaeda links. Now, within the Indonesian jihadist groups, you also had other groups that were formed, um, also from Afghan veterans, like Mujahideen Kumpak, um, like Laskar Jundal. And in 1999, you had um, communal conflict breaking out in um, the district of Poso, um, 1998, 1999. And in time, you had the establishment of J.I. and Mujahideen Kompak affiliates in Poso. And each of those had splinters. Now back to the original J.I. Yeah. J.I., that violent bombing faction, um, caused a lot of negative ramifications for J.I. They got exposed as a network. Their members uh, were imprisoned. Um, they lost a lot of materials that they had been collecting for a long time, a lot of weaponry they'd been collecting for a long time. So in 2004, 2005, um, that pro-bombing faction actually splinters off and forms their own group, <laughs> which 
confusingly enough, they call Al-Qaeda in the Malayan Archipelago and later Al-Qaeda in Southeast Asia. They had no links to Al-Qaeda. This was a way to flag Al-Qaeda, we want, we want to be a branch, we, we like you, we like you. And Al-Qaeda recognized that this was two guys who were knitting together cells trying to pull together different groups and um, would knit together a cell for a bombing. Half would die, half would get arrested, and then they'd knit another cell together for another bombing. Um, and that pretty much ended with the death of Nuruddin M. Top in 2009. Now, Jamaa's Lamia, while all of this has been happening, they tried to establish a secure base in that Poso district. Mm -hmm. That gets crushed in 2007, and they lay low for a few years. And we really start to see the reemergence of a number of these groups um, and their salience with the outbreak of the Syrian civil war, as Jamaa Islamiya, um, which had been doing dakwa, which had been doing Islamic education, which had been doing um, start doing small businesses to fund operations very quietly under the radar, they see an opportunity to send members of a new generation for training in Syria. You also had further splintering of these smaller other groups, and some of them start declaring loyalty to ISIS. Um, the most, the largest of this was a group named Jama'a Anshirut Tawhid that splintered off from Jama'a Islamiyah in 2008. So the Indonesian um, landscape is filled with splinter, 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 splinter. And the dominant group at this moment, and the, really the one to look at, is Jamal Islamiyah. Great. Well, that was, that was quite a tour of the horizon. So let's turn to the book then. Yes. So... So the argument, or the, the, the book focuses on uh, people who disengage from the jihadist movement. It tries to explain why they do that. So why do these people uh, decide to leave? Well, it's not leave. This is the tricky part. Okay. The most disengaged, reintegrated member of Indonesian Islamist extremist groups, there isn't a penalty to disengage and reintegrate from Jamaa Islamiyah um, and from many of the affiliates. The ISISers, it's a different story, and that's what the Indonesians call them, ISISers. Mm -hmm. um, so the people who are from the groups more aligned with ISIS. But within Jamaa Islamiyah and, Mujahid, and Mujahideen Kompak and Tom Runtu and Mujahideen Kalimani and these groups, there isn't really a penalty. They don't like it if you shout it from the rooftops and go write a book. But they... There's no real giant penalty. So you, what you can do is you can disengage, you can reintegrate, still keep old friends in the movement. Well, I remember at least one of your anecdotes was someone just started disagreeing with uh, the interpretation of, of a point of theology and the guy wouldn't talk to him anymore and he was yes. shut out of all of his social networks. And this was the network that was um, the Takfiri network, which is around Aman Abdurrahman. And... Uh, the person he was referencing was a J.I. member who was drifting closer to the Takfiri mentality. And within J.I., there were people who drifted closer to the Takfiri mentality and who embraced the Takfiri mm -hmm. mentality. And the great thing about this particular person, Anas, who has more degrees than pretty much anyone at, all of us combined, um, he is, um, he's this go-between. And that's really was his function. He could move with, 
and talked to the J.I. people. He was a member of J.I. and he was a member of Compaq and he was, um, could um, interact with the tech theories. Um, and everybody liked him. Um, he was this very likable social person and he knew everybody. Um, but with the tech theories at a certain point it got so right wing that they wouldn't socialize with him. But he still has friends in mm -hmm. Jamaslamia. He still has friends who were compact. And that's been an asset for him. Because when they get themselves into trouble, he can counsel them. He sees himself no longer a member of the movement, but he still socializes with kind people in their in circles. It. And that's actually very common, is even among the most reintegrated, they still socialize with their buds in the group. Interesting. And that means that disengagement and reintegration isn't, even if you leave the movement, you still keep friendships. So, what, so, so you gave us four yes. reasons that you found from your interviews that uh, that kind of drove yeah. people to disengage but not leave. So some of them were. Um, but the, <laughs> my book, it's, it's so complicated. My book identifies these four factors that interact with one another to facilitate disengagement, two of which are also necessary mm -hmm. for reintegration. And these are the alternative social networks, priority shifts, rational assessment of cost, benefit, and context, and disillusionment with tactics and leaders, and occasionally one's own role. So what I argue is that the linchpin of successful disengagement and reintegration is the establishment of an alternative social network of friends, mentors, supportive family members. And then second and complementary to that, priority shifts that refocus the extremist away from in-movement demands towards family, towards furthering one's education towards finding gainful employment and sustaining that employment. Mm -hmm. So these two factors taken together can help the extremists develop a post-jihad identity, uh, possibly post-group identity, and moreover, they can function as a counterweight um, to the pull of in-movement friends and incentives for re-engagement. So, and I found it really interesting thinking comparatively because this theme of people being kind of horrified by choices that were made, uh, you know, suicide bombing or killing of civilians or that sort of thing. Um, you see that in a lot uh, across the Middle East as well. Yeah. But typically it doesn't lead to their disengagement from jihadism as a yes. whole. It's more like we're not like them. So we are we are good jihadists and they are too extreme. And so a lot of the debates between Al-Qaeda and ISIS types today seem to revolve around those sorts of issues. But it doesn't seem to play out quite that way in your case. In my case, it's interesting because we see disillusionment. It's in the literature. It's in the Europe literature. It's to some degree in the Middle East literature. But in Indonesia, it's a secondary factor. It facilitates disengagement and the movement away from violence, but not leaving the group because you can move from a violent to a nonviolent role. Given all these splinter mm -hmm. groups, you can move from a violent to a nonviolent role and still retain in group friends and still be part of the group. You can go inactive and never leave. So, um, what I found was disillusionment with tactics like bombings. Um, this was something that about 30 of them mentioned, 30, 35 of them mentioned. Um, disillusionment with leaders, a few of them, particularly of the Afghan veteran generation, had some very strong words for specific leaders like Hambali. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was interesting, you mentioned uh, that uh, there was 
in that in that vein, there was disagreement about carrying out attacks at home. Yes. That, you know, a jihad in Iraq or Syria is legitimate, whereas yes. carrying out attacks at home is just wrong in a way. Because Indonesia is not a legitimate jihad front. Right. So even the most disengaged, reintegrated jihadist, even someone like Nasser Abbas, who runs disengagement programs, will say that, you know, Jihad in, in Palestine is legit. Of course it's legit. Jihad in Kashmir is legit. Absolutely. Um, so it's about the definition of the specific area rather than rejection of the ideas as a whole. It's about targets, timing, location, and condition. Huh. And this is where the disillusionment centered on. And this was widespread disillusionment. Um, that the target was wrong. The timing was wrong. The location, it shouldn't be in Indonesia, it should be in a legitimate jihad front, a legitimate battlefield. And the conditions were not conducive. So that's this one piece of it. And then complementary to that is this rational assessment of cost, benefit, mm -hmm. and context. So you have the emotional aspect of it, of the feeling disillusion, feeling disappointment, interacting with this rational assessment um, that it was disadvantageous to the group. The, they use the cognate uh, counterproductive. <laughs> now, when you talk about competing social networks or alternative social networks, yeah. do the do the Indonesian jihadists have the type of organization that you see like in the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood where they create almost this alternative parallel society of, you know, the cell the cells with like the study groups and these intense social bonds? Um, and often, you know, the, the the younger members are actually children of Muslim brothers. Um, is it like that, or do they tend to be more you know, kind of uh, atomized as they enter into these movements? Because I'm trying to think of where these alternative social networks would come from. Well, um, the groups themselves, it's going, it varies. Jamaaz Lamia, for example, is very enclosed. You can send your child to play groups starting in, mm -hmm. in you know, in preschool. Um, kindergartens, elementary schools, middle schools, high schools, boarding schools, the entire, their entire education can be socialized in these networks. You have multi-generational jihadi families where grandpa was Darul Islam and daddy went to Afghanistan right. and the son is, uh, sons and daughters were sent to JI schools and where you do have these teacher student relationships, um, because they adopted, um, the Yusra model, because mm -hmm. to some degree, at, at certain points in history, they adopted the Yusra model. And then you can have groups that are, are a little bit more, a little bit looser. Mujahideen Kompak was established to, um, first as a humanitarian outfit, um, to bring Indonesians to Ambon and Poso during the communal mm -hmm. conflict periods, and then they became militarized. Um, they were used by Jamaaz Lamia to bring members when um, mm -hmm. their own leadership was too slow. Um, and so they became militarized and they became, I don't want to use the word radicalized, but they became engaged yeah. in, in the paramilitary operations and paramilitary training. But you didn't have a bayat there. You didn't have, you know, you might have gotten a couple of weeks of training, but you didn't get this whole scale effective indoctrination um so that's the alternative social networks 
very, it might be that you were part of a Muslim Brotherhood drive group before, and they're the people who visited you in jail. It might be that you join another group. It might be that it's your friends from before the communal violence broke mm -hmm. out and your family, which was not involved in this. Indonesians are joiners, so it helps to be able to join an alternative group, but it might just be the people w that you work with and your friends mm -hmm. in the community and your family members. And this alter it might also involve um, groups like the Institute for International Peacebuilding, which does these very small scale, intensive professional development programs. Mm -hmm. um, and they create networks for these people of the in-group friends and of other members, mm -hmm. uh, other um, jihadists who are going through these programs and they become a support structure. So one last question. So on this concept of disengagement, then, um, is this, do you understand this as kind of a thick or a thin version of disengagement in the sense of, would these people just go back to violence if conditions changed? Or do you see it as kind of a deeper kind of cognitive or ideological change, making it kind of an enduring departure? Well, I would say it is rarely de-radicalization. Um, in terms of, is it thick or thin? I think it depends on the group you were talking about and the conditions. For the Afghan veteran generation, for example, and many of the JI people from the first two generations that I spoke with, their condition was if Indonesia got invaded. Hmm. So that's pretty thick. But are they de-radicalized? Well, I, I love Kerry Reshevsky wickhams qualifiers for moderation, you have to look at where they were, where they are compared to where they were, and they're going, they might adjust their views on some issues before others, and they might revise prior held views or postpone. Mm -hmm. You see that. Um, but whether you would call that de-radicalized, it depends on what you're measuring on. Um, if it's looking at the conditions under which um, one would undertake violence, and just very narrowly, um, if you look at the, the 23 that I interviewed from the Poso district, they said that if the Christian militias attacked them, they would take up arms again to defend their neighborhoods. But that's mm -hmm. a very classic understanding of defensive jihad. And who wouldn't take up arms to defend their neighborhoods again if they were being attacked by militia? So that's a lower bar. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't say it's any less thick. Because there were opportunities. They could have joined Mujahideen Indonesia team and continued violence. They could have joined Jayate, Jaman Shurutakid, in the brief time they were there and continued violent attacks. They chose not to. And that in itself, I think, says something about the thickness. But if we are going to talk about forming a political party like Al-Gamal Islamiyah did, yeah, that, that's not happening. Well, we've been speaking with uh, Julie Chernov-Huang. She's the author of the new book, uh, Why Terrorists Quit, The Disengagement of Indonesian Jihadists. Uh, Julia, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you.